Well, we want to welcome you again, whether you're watching online, live streaming, watching later in the week here at Brentwood campus, here at the Franklin campus, we are glad you have joined us as part of the fellowship family. You know, slavery is an ancient and global problem. Before we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, you can start working your way there in your Bible, Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. I want to make a couple of introductory remarks about slavery in general. Um, slavery existed in the earliest form of recorded human history. Now, it takes us back to the ancient Near East, and it predates our Old Testament. You might know of Babylonian and the Sumerian, these type of culture groups. They had what were, what were called codes. Uh, in this essence, they were essentially the legal documents of the day. They were, they were inscribed in stone, not in paper. Paper wasn't yet existed. The code of Ur-Namu, Ur-Namu, that's not some uh, Star Trek culture group, uh, Ur-Namu, Ur, Ur of the Chaldees from Abram, Ur was an area, Ur-Namu, the moon god, is part of the, the uh, etymology, but their stones were found that date back to 2050 B.C. This is the, if you will, the oldest document we have that's written. And these codes of Ur-Namu, they address slavery. I simply raise this up to explain that any culture in any place we go in the world Slavery has existed. In our Old Testament, we have, of course, the first five books called the Pentateuch. Slavery is mentioned as part of the Mosaic Law. How slaves and masters, how the relationship worked, and some of that dynamic. There were regulations about how they were being conducted. Uh, the most common term for slavery in the Old Testament occurs 800 times. And our minds go to a picture of slavery, but it's very different in our Scripture. Some of the times those words are used are of noble rank, a minister, a servant, or an administrator to a king could be called a slave or a servant. A servant of God like Moses, David, and Isaiah also named. The name Obadiah means the servant of Yahweh. And so these terms, although we think of a person in shackled in slavery and brutality, the image needs to be broadened a bit before we look at our passage this morning. Slavery, of course, was a problem. It was wrong in almost every case. There are a few, very few exceptions where it was not wrong. But you remember Joseph is sold into slavery, into Egypt. And ironically, God then puts Israel in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And of course, they will cry out to be free from their enslavement. Two aspects in the Old Testament that make slavery a little different than we're probably aware of, or at least most are probably aware of, and what we might call an indentured servant, a person who, because of poverty or loss, would indenture themselves to a landowner. Think of uh, the old western ranch hands who attached themselves to a, a range, a, a, a manager to work as a hand on a ranch because they were broke. But there were also aspects of not only being in debt, but a criminal, a person who was in trouble and owed a debt that he could not repay could be indentured to work off that debt, as it were. So there were cases where uh, being indentured as a servant, although it was a horrible choice, it was better than the option so they could be indentured. Secondly, uh, pious Jews who followed the law of God understood the year of Jubilee. 
In Leviticus 25.10, you shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. Unprecedented in the ancient Near East, the Jewish culture had this concept that when a slave paid off his debt, he was to be freed. When he paid off his crime, he was to be freed. And more importantly, no matter what the circumstance of his slavery, at the year of Jubilee, you let him go, and he was able to repossess the land that he once owned. So although slavery has existed from the beginning of time, we might argue, um, there were provisions in God's law that we don't often think about because our mindset is driven to one aspect of slavery. Of course, when we think of the British colonies, the United States, the atrocities of slavery, it uh, rises up a lot of emotion in us. The Civil War was fought in no small part over the issue of slavery. Now, of course, we are dealing with human trafficking and sex trafficking, and these are insidious, evil, immoral uh, it is an inhumane virus across our planet that continues to go on. It's horrific, and it's a depraved industry. And bless God, there are organizations, Christian and non, that have tried to come alongside, at least slow down, if not, God willing, stop the atrocity. It's rarely taught in American history, however, that the Union forces lost 360,000-some young men fighting to free slaves in this country. Regardless of your opinion of the Civil War and who's right and who was wrong, do not miss the fact that over 360,000 people died. What country in history fought internally, primarily, to give slaves the right to be freemen? So for all the vilification your revisionist history professors tell you, don't forget the facts. The Civil War was the bloodiest war in our history. We lost more in that war than the combined efforts after. But we don't talk about such things. More to our point in the Greek and Roman era, which we would call Rome being the superpower of the day of the New Testament. Not sure who the superpower is today. At one time it was America, right or wrong. Uh, the superpower in the first century was Rome. And the Greeks and the Romans had very different views about slavery, even than the British and American colonies. It is estimated by William Westerman there were 60 million enslaved in the Roman Empire. It's kind of mind-numbing. In Rome, almost half the population were enslaved. <clears throat> he writes in part, <clears throat> They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in the settlement of a bad debt, and prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody challenged the arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of the Mediterranean economic life. So completely accepted as part of the labor structure that one cannot only cannot correctly speak of being a slave problem in antiquity. The unquestioning acceptance of slavery was explained, explains why Plato, depicted in his work The Republic, did not even mention a slave class. It was simply there. 
So put your mind in Rome where almost half the population are enslaved. Put your mind where the superpower of the time of the New Testament, 60 million people would be conscripted at some form or another of slavery. Second big issue, not only acknowledging the history a little bit, a very, not even a thumbnail, not even a pin dot of our history of slavery, but secondly, when we read the Bible, it's not uncommon for people to ask, why didn't Paul abolish slavery? Why didn't Paul at least write about abolishing? Why didn't Jesus come out and abolish slavery? Now we call these questions from silence or straw man questions. Just because something isn't addressed in the Bible, we complain about it. Well, let me try to give you a bit of a perspective. When Jesus Christ came, for example, he did not heal everyone. A lot of people died when Jesus was on the planet that he could have stopped their dying. In fact, we continue to die from diseases Jesus could stop. Secondly, when Jesus Christ came, he didn't overthrow the scribes, the Pharisees, much less Rome. That was not why he came. Thirdly, he did not come to solve all the injustices of life. We have a record of a few people, lepers, those that were ill, those that were dead, he brought back to life. We have a sample. Let's say it's 10 times more than our New Testament records. There were hundreds of thousands of more that he could have resolved their problem. Jesus Christ came not merely to uh, remedy our current situation. He came to remedy our ultimate problem. That we are sinners separated by our sin, headed to hell, and he came to redeem men's souls from hell. Now, without going into great detail, Mark Powell gives an interesting overview of the literal times slavery is talked about in the New Testament and the metaphorical ways slavery is talked about. Just listen and try to take in the picture. Literally, on two occasions in the Gospels, Jesus heals a slave. On one occasion, Paul cast out a demon from a slave. On several occasions, the New Testament is very clear that slaves are equal in value to all men. Galatians 3.28 being sort of the whetstone we sharpen this argument on. Neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek were one in Christ. Racial divisions are gone. Social strata is gone. In Christ we're one. There's no partiality. Third, Paul and incidentally Peter write extensively about the relationship and treatment of slaves in the New Testament. For, or fifth, rather, slavery was condemned in the sense of slave trading. Many miss it. It's a bit obscure, but in 1 Timothy 1.10 and in Revelation 18.13, 1 Timothy 1.10, Revelation 18.13, slave trading is prohibited. It's considered an evil sin. And lastly, specifically in the New Testament, we have the little letter of Philemon. Philemon is a story, as you know, about a runaway slave who's come to Christ, we would say, and Paul sends him back to his owner. Incredulous story. What we don't always know is the end of the story. Onesimus later becomes a bishop. So slavery was talked about literally, metaphorically. Jesus tells a number of parables where the primary actors are slaves. Jesus uses slavery as a metaphor for discipleship. If you wanted to be a disciple, you're essentially a slave to Jesus. Slavery is also a metaphor for devotion, as the way Paul unpacks it. 
Slavery is generally a symbol for a negative bondage into sin as we're in Christ, we're free from that bondage. Dr. Harold Honer writes, Christianity does not promise a release from present circumstances, but gives the power to endure those circumstances. Though Paul does not promote the abolition of slavery, he does instruct believers to avoid becoming slaves and enjoin slaves to gain their freedom when possible. And that's a reference to 1 Corinthians 7. So don't become a slave. If you don't, don't indenture yourself. And when you have the opportunity, get out of it. So it's a bit unfair to just castigate the Bible that it doesn't prohibit slavery, just like many straw man arguments. Well, as we orient ourselves to Ephesians chapter 6, 5 to 9, which specifically mentions slaves and masters, let's get a bead on the bigger picture. In Ephesians 5, 21, we have a very important principle that guides all of chapter 5 and part of chapter 6, and that's to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That is the principle. That's the overarching statement Paul gives, and then he explains it with a series of relationships to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The first relationship is the wife to her husband. The second is the church to Christ. The third is ancillary where he says, uh, husbands, you're not the Lord and head of your house like you think you are. You love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then he goes back to children being obedient to their parents. And ancillary, don't provoke your children to wrath, but you discipline them and you instruct them in the way of the Lord. And the last of those illustrations has to do with slaves and masters. So get the picture. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. A wife to her husband. The church is subject to Christ. Husbands are to love sacrificially. Children are to be obedient, submissive to their parents. Parents, when you parent those kids, do it with love and with discipline and instruction, not just provoking them to anger. And finally, we look at the master and slave relationship. John Stott writes, exactly the same people, excuse me, exactly the same principle can be applied by contemporary Christians to their work and employment. Our great need is a clear-sightedness to see Jesus and to set him before us. Our need, our great need, is a clear-sightedness to see Jesus and set him before us. On your side screens, if you get nothing else, this is all I will say for the next 20-some minutes. No matter what your station in life may be, we are to obey God with all our heart. No matter what social strata, no matter what our job may be, no matter for the boss, the manager, the employer, or the employee, no matter if we're retired, if we're unemployed, no matter our social strata of life, the bottom line of this entire section is, will you obey the authority of Jesus Christ? Will you wholeheartedly obey God at his word? Well, let's take a look at the passage beginning chapter 6, verse 5 of Ephesians. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Number one, slaves are to obey as to Christ. Now the word Paul leads with here is doulos. Doulos is the most common term in the New Testament for slaves, and he uses it as one, um, typically a male, 
who is solely committed to another. It's the idea of humble servitude to, to a master, to someone else. Now, it's very easy and often overlooked when we hit a word that's so vitriolic and, 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 and such a caustic term when we talk about slavery. But one thing I don't want you to miss, Paul's writing a letter to the Ephesian believers. It's the church at Ephesus. Who is in the audience? Christian slaves. Don't miss it. It's the biggest duh point of the passage. He's elevated women from a view of chattel in a culture to being equal. Now he's elevating slaves. They're part of the body of Christ. They're in a context, in a circumstance, as we all are, but do not miss he's addressing believing slaves. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 has a parallel passage for those of you who are Bible students and want to look at this further. They're part of the body of Christ. Now, he explains this obedience. Look at how he describes it. Obey your masters. Be obedient to your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. The first way he explains obedience is with fear and trembling. Now, we've sort of watered, not sort of, we have watered down these words tremendously. When we read the words fear and trembling, we typically think you're to respect someone. But the word respect, I will argue in a moment, has lost all traction in our culture. These words precisely mean what they sound like they mean, to be afraid and to physically tremble in the presence of that fear. Referred to the, because it was so uh, visceral to me as a child watching The Wizard of Oz, uh, Wizard of Oz when I was a child. I mean, flying monkeys therapy for that dude. But... Uh, when it comes to going to see Oz, I mean, they're all terrified. They're trembling at this, you know, this big apparatus. And um, I don't think we're to approach Jesus Christ in that form or manner, but I would say that's a better form or manner than this nonsense of respect. He is God, He is sovereign. He is not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. And, and there needs to be a healthy, holy, appropriate fear and trembling. Yes, we have bold access. Yes, we've been granted that access to the person or work of Christ. That doesn't mean we lounge our way into the presence of the Holy Savior. If we could reframe the word respect to mean what it should mean, I would be happy with it. Because it's been neutered and diminished and dissed, I would say it holds very little meaning. Think of how our culture views respect. Do we respect authority? Do we respect teachers? Do we respect police officers? Do we respect an EMT or a fire truck response when they're going by us? Do we respect the boss or the manager? Do we respect the employer, the owner, the vendor? Do we respect someone who's in authority over us? We have a police officer presences on the campuses all weekend long. Give you peace of mind to be here in case something crazy happened. We want to be ready talking to them after one of the services and I asked them, do people respect you today when you pull them over, when you talk to them? And oh, I wish I had time to share the stories they shared with me. 
The simple answer is not so much. And I know firsthand from some stories that I have been privy to where a teen is pulled over and how they were right and the police officer was wrong. The millennial, the millennial mindset has been so changed because in no small part of us is parenting them. But young people today don't respect anyone. Now, some of you do. I don't mean to overstate it. But I would argue the vast majority of our culture does not respect anyone. Proof to the point, when they're pulled over, when they're given a bad review, when they're fired, it's not their fault. It's the police officer's fault. It's the boss's fault. It's the manager's fault. It's everybody else's fault. Truth be told, if that person was not a rights-oriented, all-about-me individual and was willing to learn and hear, they probably wouldn't have gotten a ticket, wouldn't have gotten a bad review, and wouldn't have been fired. It's really that simple. But let's just say that that manager, employer, boss, police officer, person in authority isn't a pleasant, good person. Let's just acknowledge that for a minute. It does not excuse our lack of respect of the authority structures that we are under on this planet. No matter what your station in life, no matter what my station in life, we are to respect those that are in authority over us. But when it comes to God, there ought to be a little more fear and trembling. I'm not saying you are afraid of him, but you approach him with the recognition a sovereign is due. Our culture has lost respect for anyone except themselves their personal rights. Secondly, he continues, in the sincerity of your heart. It's the idea of singleness, and we might put them together, singleness and wholehearted devotion. Single focus and wholehearted devotion. It's a person who's willing to assist someone else putting their own needs aside. It's the same concept of 521. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. If I understand who this God is, I will live the way he wants me to live. And that means much of the time I may be serving someone else, single and wholehearted. He continues, it's, it's not only like a, a double dealing or a two-faced individual. Think of double dealing, two-faced people at work. We, we don't want to be around them. Burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me, right? If a person can't be trusted, if they're triangulating things at work or in relationships in, as a vendor, as an employer, as a manager, as an employee, we don't want anything to do with them. Everybody knows the words on the street, don't get involved with so-and-so because they're double-faced. You want a single-minded, wholehearted, focused individual, not a double-faced person. Notice, don't miss, fear and trembling, single-hearted, single-focused and wholehearted, as to Christ. Verse 6 continues, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Again, we get the idea of eye service and men pleasers. Invariably, there's that person, we've all worked with one, that seems to do as little as possible all day long if they get real busy when the boss comes by. Or worse yet, they have this innate 
keen ability to the moment the boss is there to have some presentation or something that they've done or giving or they take credit for something right at the right time when they had nothing to do with it beforehand. Don't we love those kind of people? And then you and maybe me are working diligently all day long. I mean, we put in a good full day and we're busy. And the one minute we put our feet up, the one minute we put our feet up, now the boss comes by. Always happens, doesn't it? Life's not fair. Get over it. Never will be. But if you and I are single-focused and wholehearted as to the Lord, Paul is saying be full of the fear of God and be fear, free of the fear of pleasing men. Be full of your wholehearted service to God. Be absolved, be free from men's opinion of you. Why? Because if you are doing it as unto the Lord, I would argue, it will take care of itself. You're not worrying about eye service or pleasing people or triangulating because you're doing it as to the Lord. Verse 6, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, Scripture is brimming with the commands to obey. At the very beginning of the passage, we have obey. We don't like that word, but we're told to obey. We're told to obey, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and or strength many times in Scripture. And the application is impossible to miss. Are you and I working wholeheartedly in obedience to Christ? If, if I go around telling people to obey, what a, what a stupid thing. Obey me. That plays real well in the world, doesn't it? Obey me. Do it because I... Those of you parenting small children, toddlers, how well does it work? Obey! Thanks, Dad. Absolutely. When's the last time you gave your kid a lecture and they said, Father of mine, thank you for clarifying that for me. I have been so wrong. What can I do to serve you? Doesn't work that way. We went to the CIS at the time, Commonwealth of Independent States, formerly Russia, a number of years ago, spent several weeks training pastors, small team of pastors and theologians. We went in there training these pastors that have essentially no training. And as part of our preparation, we met with a team and a man that had been there, I think, 38 times. He had gone back and forth, fluent in Russian, and uh, he was giving us the ropes. And one of the little things he taught us before we got on the plane to go abroad was, once in a while he said, I might tell you something that's going to make no sense whatsoever. I want you to remember this. Do not think, obey. And he made us say it out loud a couple of times. Do not think, obey. So we get to Russia and we're going around. And of course, in those situations at that time, you, were, you had your guide and you had their guide. And uh, you're being followed and watched. Everything you do is being monitored. And at one particular time, we we're going into a situation and we're about to do this conference we'd planned. And he made this abrupt change, and we were going to do something else. And he told us all to sit down, essentially, and shut up and be quiet. We were going somewhere else. And I, you know, jet lag and whatnot, I got up and I said, now, wait a minute. I thought we were going. He says, do not think, obey. And I went. So I sat down. And later that evening, he told us about the danger we were in, that us stupid American visitors were completely uh, oblivious of. 
but it was a good thing he knew what was happening so we could obey him and steer clear of getting in trouble and very likely going to jail. What if you and I looked at the commands of Scripture, don't think, obey? Oh, that's so anti-American. It's like, that's like counterculture. That's like a revolution. We've drunk too long from the culture, men and women. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and or strength, with all our might. Render goodwill in service as to the Lord, not to men. Goodwill is a great description. It's the habit of the heart that's bent towards hatred and resisting those in authority over us. No, do it with goodwill, not for the person, but for the Lord. It is he whom you serve. Be full of the fear of God. Live to please Him. Be free of the fear of man. doesn't mean you don't respect man, but you're not fearful and motivated by man's opinion or eye service. You're motivated by your fear of God. Why would a slave do this? Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether free or slave. It goes back to obeying your master. You obey your master in heaven because he's the one who controls and possesses reward. Certainly, a believing slave who does all of his work well, a believing employee who does all his or her well, even if the boss doesn't see it, the master never misses. And I would argue again, the posture of a worker who's diligent, hardworking, goes above and beyond. Once in a while, is willing to step in and say, I don't know, but I'd be happy to help. I don't know how we can fix this, but I'd be happy to contribute to the problem as opposed to the critic, the naysayer, the whiner. That's not my job. I wasn't hired to do that. Which one's going to get the attention of the master? This is not hard, guys. If you employ or manage people or hire and fire people, you totally get this. I'd, I'd take a less competent person with a better attitude than a higher competent person with a bad attitude. Because it's the attitude of, I'm here to be part of it. I'm here to serve. We're serving the Lord. Even in a situation where it's a, quote, non-Christian environment. Isn't it interesting? You're the Christian there that can make that a Christian environment by the way you serve Christ. Your work matters to God. Your relationship with those around you is very important to Christ because you're his representative there at this time. Be full of the fear of God. Live to please Him. Set the fear of man, the eye service, the eye pleasing aside, and you're doing it as to the Lord. Secondly, masters then are to treat their slaves. Paul simply says, in the same manner. Look at verse 9. Masters do the same things. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with them. It's far-reaching, although brief, and there's three simple principles. Number one, do the same things. It's a review of all the above. You're not pleasing people. You're not doing it as eye service. You're doing it single, wholeheartedly, the same way. We might say with integrity. We might refer to the so-called golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. It's not that hard. We sure expect it when it's the boss coming down this direction as employers, as leaders, as managers, as bosses, do we treat people that way? 
And that's where 521 is so important. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Not the way the world does this. Secondly, stop threatening them. Threatening is the modus operandi of antiquity. John Stott writes, threats are the weapon of power that wield over those who are powerless. We all go into reviews under the fear of threat. We're going to lose our job. The threat when the lights go on in our rearview mirror. We're threatened we're going to get a ticket or pull. It's a, or worse than that, maybe arrested. We're we're operated with this whole notion of the fear of something happening. Fascinating, he tells those in authority, don't intimidate. Don't threaten people. That's pretty countercultural. Third, remember, you have the same master. And this is interesting. You may think you're the boss, the master, the employer, the manager, whatever. You and the person who works for you in that culture, you and the slave, you have the same master. You're working for the same boss. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter your social structure in life. Doesn't matter if you make $10 an hour or $1,000 an hour. You have the same master. He doesn't care your strata in life, he cares about your faithfulness. You see, I learned this years ago and it has served me well. God does not care if you and I are successful, He only cares if we're faithful. And I would argue those who are faithful tend, tend, listen carefully, tend to succeed. It's not a guarantee. It's not prosperity theology. But God has not called you to be a success. He's called you to be faithful. And I would argue that those who are faithful are those who tend to succeed. It's the parable of the steward. The one who does well with what he has is the one who's given more. The one who does well with what he's given is the one who's given more responsibility. The one who's the laggard, the complainer, the whiner, the indolent, on the computer all day, shopping all day long, playing with Facebook and social media all day long instead of working, that's the indolent steward. The one who's doing his or her best. Not perfect. No one's perfect. Working hard trying to meet deadlines, honest when they make mistakes, willing to own their problem, taking leave when they need to, correcting something when it needs to be done. I'll stay a little later. I'll come a little earlier. How can I help? That's the steward God is after. This word partiality is fascinating. Our text says God chose no partiality. The word partiality literally is to receive a face. It means to receive a face. Now think about this. The way the word is used police officer sees a car speeding by and he or she pulls over the speeding car. They walk up to the window. The window rolls down. It's the chief of police or the mayor or someone else. They have just now received a face. Now in the world, more likely than not, that officer is going to do what? Say, have a good day, sir. Have a good day, ma'am. Sorry to bother you. What have you just done? You've shown partiality. This verse says God doesn't show any partiality. He doesn't care whether you're the master or the slave. In the sense that he's not judging you on your social standing in this crazy life in which we identify people as successful or unsuccessful or important or unimportant or more important and less important or more educated or less educated. Christ doesn't look at you that way. Praise God. 
He shows no partiality between slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. All are on the same level ground at Calvary. So what? No matter your station in life, you and I are to obey God with all our heart. Though it may not be easy, obedience is always better. I would argue obedience is a lot easier than we think. And it's always better than the alternative. Talking about obedience today, you got to be kidding me. Who's your master? Your own concoction or God? Paul understood. He called himself a slave three times when he wrote introductions to Rome, to Philippi, and Titus, a bondservant of Christ. Same term. He called three of his closest friends, Timothy, Epaphras, and Tychicus. He called them slaves. John, when he wrote the Revelation nine times, once refers to Moses, the slave of Christ. Interesting, the one who redeems Israel from slavery is called a slave of Jesus Christ. And eight more times, believers are called slaves of Christ. The irony of Christianity is he frees us from slavery and bondage to sin, going to hell unbridled. He breaks the shackles and makes us free from sin. And then he asks you, will you willingly conscript yourself to be a slave of Christ? Because as a slave of Christ, I will give you more freedoms than you've ever imagined. If you go back to slavery of sin, it'll be just as predictable. A dead end, discouraging, self-defeating, all about you. But as you willingly conscribe yourself, I've been set free by the God of the universe who owns my soul. Why would I not willingly, readily, eagerly serve him? And so the metaphor is ancient and powerful. What we miss in the passage, again, if you're in a community group or a Bible study person, you'll see them. But let me get you started in six little phrases. They're all prepositional phrases. Look again at chapter 6. Verse 1, in the Lord. Verse 4, of the Lord. Verse 5, as to Christ. Verse 6, slaves of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. And verse 8, from the Lord. We miss the obvious every time we read the Bible. This entire section is about one concept, subjection to authority. And he ties it off with all these relationships in life, and he ends it with, it's about your relationship to Christ. As to the Lord, slaves of Christ, unto him, for him. It's not about you and me. It's about our willing, indentured service to the one who set us free. At the greatest level, you and I get a choice every day, a hundred times. Will you serve yourself or will you serve your Savior? Our Father in heaven, we do love you. We acknowledge our fight with sin our seduction to do what seems easy and pleasurable and all about us. 
And for a few minutes today, we have been hopefully encountered by your word to understand you are the authority and we're not. We serve a greater master than that's on this planet. We serve you. Whether we're a boss, an employer, a manager, an owner, whether we're an employee, an hourly worker, whether we work for ourselves or vend out our services to others, whether we're unemployed, we serve you, not some system the world's concocted. Completely reframe our view that what we do is unto the Lord, as to Christ, slaves of our master. We pray in his name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.